friends, before we begin, let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we pray that only your word be spoken, only your word heard, and only your word lived. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, let me start today with a story. Uh, about a year ago now, uh, when we first moved to the Bow Valley, uh, I was in town and I was looking to switch my cell phone to a different carrier. So I went to a local cell phone shop and uh, they really helped me out. And so I bought a new phone and then we were transferring all my data from my old phone to my new phone. And I had a lot of stuff, so that was going to take a while. And we did it all in store. We used a local Wi-Fi. And so as I was sitting there with a sales rep, we just got into conversation. It was really great. And we were talking, getting to know each other. And then eventually he asked me what I did in town. And I let him know that uh, we had just moved. I had been hired to be an assistant, uh, an associate priest at the local Anglican church. And <laughs> I told him that. And then he kind of smirked. He kind of laughed, but then he tried to suppress it. You know, he was trying to be polite and all that. But I gave him the giggles. And so I kind of figured why, but I, I asked him, Oh, is it funny because because of all the hookups and substances in town? And he kind of laughed and he said, well, yeah. You know, this, he thought that it was kind of funny for me to come and do this job in a town like this. But the, but the vibe was like, all right. Well, I kind of expected that. You know, I kind of need to expect, uh, you know, the kind of the culture in town for at least young folks. Uh, we talked about it, but it was fine. We were just having a conversation. I got to know him a little bit. He let me know that he came from Australia and he was working to make enough to uh, snowboard and to party. He intimated that that was uh, not only his reality, but that was kind of the vibe for a lot of people in town. And Christianity wasn't really on anyone's radar, at least not for him. He had grown up in a Christian home in Australia and it just wasn't for him. You know, it wasn't for him. It was all about boarding and partying. I was thinking about him uh, as I was preparing this sermon because as I was reflecting on that conversation, I realized that in, some, in such a clear and uh, succinct way, he had put his finger on and he had shared with me uh, the modern outlook that he inhabited. And if I could put it into a sentence, it would go something like this. You should be free to live as you see fit as long as you don't harm others. As I was reflecting on this uh, modern outlook, I learned that this view is rooted in an understanding of modern identity. In the past, for example, People saw themselves as inextricably connected to community, to family, but not only to that, but to cosmic and spiritual realities. But today, that's reversed. As a famous sociology, a sociologist put it, and I quote, each person has a unique core of feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality or identity is to be realized. In the past, uh, we developed attachment to others, to our community. But modern secularism teaches personal development through detachment of community, right? So you notice young people, as they get older, they just leave uh, their towns of origin, they leave their previous religious communities, and they go out into the world making their own choices and determining who they are for themselves. And that's kind of the dominant cultural narrative. And this is what the cultural, this is the cultural message. Don't try to get affirmation from others. Affirm yourself because you are doing what you want to do. Be who you want to be, and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. That is the heart of modern Western expressive individualism. Now, here's the rub. This modern vision is as crushing, if not more so, than traditional and religious culture. It is. 
and we're going to explore that. But the fact is that the only way to avoid being crushed by either of these perspectives, right? We'll be crushed by the modern secular version, but we don't want to jump on the bandwagon of some kind of traditional religious perspective. You kind of want to avoid both. And the way we do that is by identifying with Jesus. Well, let, uh, let's see how this works by exploring and then reflecting on God's word about sex. So it turns out in our Corinthians reading, it's front and center. So let's not dodge it. Let me read to you uh, the beginning of our Corinthians reading today. And this is verse 13. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In today's passage here in Corinthians, and actually if you read further to the beginning of chapter 7, Paul is responding to uh, two ancient views of sex. All right, so some ancients believed that sex was merely an appetite. Did you feel hungry? Well, go ahead and eat. Do you feel sexy? Then have sex. It was simply natural. That's that. Now, other, some other ancients believe that sex was kind of naturally defiling. Right? So you just didn't do it. They would just say something like, you know, don't have sex, do philosophy, contemplate, you know, existence, and don't be distracted by all that sex stuff. Now, what I find interesting is that these two ancient perspectives didn't stay ancient. The first view was found in more progressive circles. You know, the idea that sex is natural. If you have a consenting partner, you know, go for it. And the second perspective, the second attitude is found in more conservative circles. You know, like sex is, sex is kind of dirty, you know. I mean, it's necessary for kids, but, you know, let's just not talk about it. Ew, let's just not talk about it. As we read Paul today in our passage, but if you read more of his writing, you would get the sense that Paul isn't progressive, but he's also not conservative when it comes to sex. He understood that God's view of sex was higher and richer than both those attitudes. In verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Now that term sexual immorality is kind of vague in English, but it's not in Greek. The word in Greek is porneia, which means having sex with anyone you're not married to. Now, this is a very uh, general and more encompassing term. He's not talking about adultery. He could have used a, a Greek word for adultery. He doesn't do that. He uses porneia. It's much more all-encompassing. And when he uses it, notice that uh, he doesn't soft-pedal this, right? He doesn't say like, oh, hey, I got some advice. Maybe you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. He doesn't do that. He's very clear. He says, flee. Have nothing to do with it. You know, at this point, you might be thinking or you might be saying, Seth, you know, what you're saying really does sound like a conservative line. And I hear what you're, I hear what you're saying, but respectfully, no, Paul's not doing that. Listen to what he says. This is verse 15. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. The key to understanding what Paul is sharing here is that word flesh. He's not referring, when he uses that word, he's not referring to like the physical body. He can't be using that. That'd be a really weird sentence. He'd be saying, do you know that if you unite yourself physically with a prostitute that you unite yourself physically? Right? It's kind of, uh, that's not what he's saying. When he used the word flesh, in a more technical sense, he's referring to personhood. What he's talking about what makes you, you. This is a, high, uh, a radically high view of sex. 
right? Paul is saying that sex is meant by God to be the full giving of your entire self to the one you belong to. Sex isn't dirty, you know, but it's necessary for kids. You know, that conservative line, it's not that. And it's not simply a natural way of self-gratification or self-expression. You know, that progressive line. Sex is designed by God as a way for you to give yourself so deeply that it results in personal transformation and completion. Pop culture says, be careful with your money, but be promiscuous with your body. And yet God says, be promiscuous with your money, but careful with your body. Why? Well, because sex outside of marriage dishonors and destroys this incredible person-shaping shaping commitment mechanism that God designed for you to become who you were always meant to be. Now, do you see that picture? That's a, it's a high view of sex. It blows the conservative and progressive views out of the water. All right, I gave you uh, the Christian sex talk, and I think it's super important and something that we should continue having a dialogue about and exploring, learning more about. Uh, but as I've shared with, with you, my gut tells me, uh, if you're a non-Christian for sure, but I think even if you're a Christian, uh, you probably will not find this um, perspective uh, persuasive or even interesting. I think that the modern, modern idea wins out. The idea that, you know, you should be free to live as you see fit as long as you don't harm others. That makes way more intuitive sense. And this is what I want to get at. I want to invite you to ask yourself why. Why are Paul's words like white noise, but uh, culture's outlook so natural and acceptable? You know, I was um, talking with my sister last week, maybe two weeks ago, and she has an awesome online ministry for women. And we were just talking about ministry and our faith and reflecting on what prevents people from checking out Christianity, what prevents them from giving it an honest shot. And we came up with a lot of reasons. For example, uh, Christianity's complicity and injustice. You know, we can immediately make connections to the African slave trade in the 16th and 17th, 18th centuries. Um, and here at home, definitely we more recently think about residential school systems and how the Christian church was definitely complicit in all that. That's a big uh, sort of barrier that uh, prevents people from interfacing with Christianity. Uh, but we also thought about the authority of the Bible. Some people just have, so are suspicious of the Bible. They wonder, well, it purports to be history or make certain claims, but what about the earliest documents? They Maybe they don't match, or is it actually history? Uh, we don't know. And so they're skeptical with regards to the Bible. You know, I get that. And for some people, it's the supernatural. Struggle with some of the miraculous claims in the Bible. Did Noah actually put all those animals in that boat? Or that Palestinian prophet was murdered on the cross, and then he just came back to life. Like, that's hard to swallow for some people. And so they don't buy it. And so we talked about all that, but I told her, you know what, if we were putting money on this, I think that the main reason why people just don't give Jesus a chance is that they suspect that if they follow Jesus, this is how the fear goes, their lives would become incredibly unfun, like really unfun, right? Because you think of Christianity, you make the connection, oh man, all those rules, right? And we're modern, we don't, we don't believe life is about... Um, rules, life is about being true to yourself. We don't give into institutional restrictions or validations. In fact, we bestow the verdict of significance on ourselves. I mean, that's how the popular wisdom goes. 
And yeah, I get why that sounds attractive, except that it's an illusion. Just go on social media. Just do it on Instagram. You'll find millions of people claiming to self-validate, and yet they're working so hard to socialize themselves into online communities of peers, virtue signaling, saying the right things in front of you know cheerleaders of the people whose approval they they crave. Okay, that's social media. But let <clears throat> let's go let's go deeper. I want to do a thought experiment, so I invite you to do it with me. Uh, close your eyes if it helps. But let's think this through. All right. Think about a Viking in the year 1100. He has two strong impulses, right? One is aggression, right? He loves battle. And in his culture, that's completely acceptable. That's fine. But the other impulse he has is same-sex attraction. He wishes that he didn't feel that. That's a no-no in his culture. He says to himself, well, that's not me. I'll control and suppress that. Now, think, uh, about, uh, think about today, a young man in the Bow Valley. He has the same two impulses as the Viking. What does he do? Well, he looks at his aggression and says, well, that's not me. And so let's say he takes anger management classes. And then he looks at his sexual desire and concludes, yeah, that's who I am. That's me. Now, why do, now why, what's, what's the point of this uh, thought experiment? Well, I think that if we slow down and we reflect, we begin to see that it's an illusion to think identity is simply an expression of inward desires and feelings. We don't identify with all our strong desires and feelings. Rather, we use a filter, a set of beliefs and values to sift through our hearts and determine which emotions and impulses we will value and incorporate into our core identity and which we won't. It's this value-laden filter that forms our identity rather than the feelings themselves. So you might, you got to be asking yourself, where do we get this filter? That is a, a, a large and complex uh, question, but in the briefest terms, we get it from a community of trust, a community that we trust, uh, a community that impresses us, a community that we want them to like us. And so it's misleading and, and like borderline dishonest to say, I just have to be myself and no matter what anyone else says, because yourself is defined by what a group of people has to say. Or to put it another way, identity is determined not by our feelings and desires, they're determined by our beliefs about uh, varied, contradictory, changing feelings and desires. Sociologist Robert Bella puts it like this, the irony is that here too, just where we modern people think we are most free, we are most coerced by the dominant beliefs of our own culture. For it is a powerful cultural fiction that we not only can, but must make up our deepest beliefs in the isolation of our private selves. And he goes on. Insofar as they are limited to a language of radical autonomy and cannot think about themselves or others except as arbitrary centers of volition, it means they cannot express the fullness of being that it actually bears. So the point is that our identity isn't something we simply bestow on ourselves. We don't discover or create our identity in isolation. We actually negotiate our moral values and beliefs in some community. We find ourselves in and through others. And so the question is, 
which others have you chosen? Because depending on which others you've chosen, that's going to deeply influence, for example, what you hear when you hear the word of God, right? I mean, that's why when we hear St. Paul and what he says about sex, it sounds really strange because we have a pop culture filter installed that's shaping what makes intuitive sense and what doesn't. And so we have a choice. Are we going to be Eli or Eli's sons? You know, in our Old Testament reading in Samuel, we heard about Eli and his sons. Uh, they're named uh, Hophni and Phinehas. If you read the whole story, well, in today's uh, reading, it says that God uses little Samuel as a prophet to deliver his word to Eli the priest. And this is what God said. This is verse 13. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons uttered blasphemies against God, and he failed to restrain them. Now, we didn't hear the whole story today, but one of the key blasphemies of Eli's sons was that they were sleeping with the women who were serving the temple. They knew God's word on sex, but they, they didn't care. They wanted what they wanted. And so they were living into their own truth. They were looking at their inward desires and living them out without constraint. And the reality is that some of us are like this. We hear what God says, but we want what we want. And so we do what we want. You know, we have casual hookups, or if you're married, infidelity, or we open a private tab in our browser and then, you know, off to the races. Or some of us, well, we're like Eli. We know that family or close friends are living contrary to what God has designed for us, but we don't say anything. We excuse us ourselves by inhabiting a modern view of, you know, you, you do you. And then we keep quiet. Interestingly, God's judgment falls equally on both son and father. So what do we do? I mean, this is really tough stuff. Eli's sons, Eli. So this is very complex and this runs really deep. But the question will always be, where do we begin in all this complexity? Well, I think little Samuel, well, he got it right. When we encounter God's word and we don't know what to do, we say what he said. In verse 10, Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Now that, that response in the face of this kind of complexity is, is challenging, for sure. You know, we don't want to be Eli's sons. We don't want to be Eli. We want to be like Samuel. But, man, that's, that's a tough step to take. And, I mean, real talk, what is it that stops us from doing that? You know, I've been thinking about this in my own life, reflecting on it. And there are a lot of reasons, but I think one of the biggest is fear. You know, for all our identity crafting and self-validating, we know who we've been. We know who we actually are. We know the truth of what the psalmist said in today's psalm reading. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. What we do or suppress in the dark, God sees as if it's done in the open. We're all hiding something that we dread others finding out. You know, our casual sex, infidelity, you know, substance use, pornography. I mean, the list can really go on. And so as a defense mechanism, we don't allow God to speak into parts of our lives. You know, like our views on sex. The modern take is more convenient 
at least in the short term. You know, we insist, you know, what we do is we insist on the on the rightness of the modern secular view and import, actually import secular values into our faith. You know, we insist that Christianity is really about just being good people, but that breeds a dangerous pride because we're not actually just good people. Listen, if you knew that today people would see all your thoughts and intentions just over the past week, let alone your life, like if we hook up your memories to a TV, we'd all be breathing in paper bags. All right, just think about that. True faith is letting go of self-made identities and receiving an identity from God as forgiven in order to forgive. You know, when you come to God like this with everything that you've been, this is the definition of vulnerability. You know, we can't pridefully hold on to our resume of good deeds because according to the cross, they pale in comparison to our mistakes. You know, when Philip, in our gospel reading, he invites Nathanael to come see Jesus, Nathanael says, verse 46, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? You know, Nathanael was all puffed up. He had his own uh, resume of good deeds. I mean, why would he need to come to Jesus? You know, when we're invited to encounter Jesus, some of us look down on the vulnerability of repentance. Can anything good from taking religion that seriously? All that praying through the Bible and confessing your sins. All that matters is that I'm a good person. That's all that matters. But we can't come to God that way. Nathaniel tried. And as he approached, Jesus said to him, Hey, Nathaniel. Yeah, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Yeah, I saw you, man. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, but whatever it was, it was personal and significant enough that when he learned that Jesus was uh, there with him, that he had seen him, oh man, his puffed up pride, his self-validation, it all melted away. And his heart was transformed. Verse 49, then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And then Jesus replies in the weirdest way. Verse 50, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. You know, it. we might... Uh, we might miss this, but what Jesus is saying here is actually incredibly extraordinary. He's pointing to a vision that Jacob had in the Old Testament. And at the time of the vision, Jacob had been living a duplicitous life. He was a liar and a thief. He was having a terrible time. In fact, he was out in the field sleeping with a stone for a pillow. And yet, even before repenting, God gives him an incredible vision of a heavenly ladder uh, and angels ascending and descending. The gate of heaven opened to Jacob. Listen, we're in Epiphany, right? So we're, in many ways, we're digging into the meaning of Christmas, of God revealing himself to us as a baby, so vulnerable. So what's Christmas about? Well, contrary to what Nathaniel initially assumed, God's glory tends to come down in mangers, not luxury hotels onto crosses, not thrones, onto 
and into the lives of disgraced people and into the lives of people whose lives have fallen apart. That's where heaven tends to open. Jacob's vision of the gate of heaven opening has come in the manger. Jesus was born, died, and was raised to new life so that if you turn to him in honesty of who you've been and you say, God, oh God, you know me, you know everything. I'm just going to be letting go of all these made up identities. I'm going to stop insisting in the modern myth of living in my own truth. God, I'm here. Speak, for your servant is listening. Oh, if you go to that place of honesty and vulnerability, God will meet you because he loves you. You know, Jesus Christ has seen you under your fig tree. Jesus Christ has seen you on your stone pillow, and he loves you. God loves you so much that he came into this world and he's identified with you. He's loved you at the cost of everything. I want to invite you to place this truth at the center of your life. Make this your identity and experience the true freedom that only Jesus Christ can give. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and loving God, we come before you uh, with our whole lives. And as much as we know about ourselves and we remember or we believe about who we are, man, you know everything. You see us all the way down and you love us. And before we even came to you, you came to us. You were born in the manger and then you lived and you died for us so that we could be your family forever. God, help us to take this truth to the center of our lives that we may experience your love and your life, maybe for the first time. And then we can share that with others. God, we pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.